0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Oh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, Mm. brothers or something like that, and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best.
1: Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these
0: magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies or shepherds. Yep. So, if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: I like this. All
1: right. So, now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution?
0: Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So, what about we get one sent here to Australia. Right. And you'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs.
1: Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear,
0: all your dog training needs, because mm-hmm. we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs yep. will be met by Ainswick Dog Quip. Oh, the
1: buffed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah. You'll be able yep. to get that from Ainswick
0: because yep. you're going to be here in Australia.
1: Well, that means that you have to go up. North, further north, yep. in, in North America. Yeah. And go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep.
0: And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, canine Dynamics. Yep. Yeah. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from Canine Dynamics. Yep. If I'm in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benway. Yeah, so I'm actually going to get my dog tra- – I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. yep. So everything both areas. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home, train that dog. While and- you're sipping – Cafe just, lattes, just, just gallivanting
1: yeah. all over. Gallivanting. The world. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm at my house again because life's gotten crazy. We didn't get time to actually get out there this week. And I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook, who's in the studio. How are you, sir?
1: Yeah, I'm good. We've just been having this massive conversation for about 45 minutes before we even got on air just about life and all the wondrous things about it. And, uh, yeah, that was sort of absorbing all this time and we've put a lot of energy into that conversation. But that's uh, (laughs) – (laughs) We've got to stop doing that. I know, but it was a it was a really good conversation. I wish we could share it, but it was kind of like personal. Yeah, it was personal. It was just things that I mean, we talk about a lot of personal stuff in the podcast, but we also have these amazing conceptual discussions about other things that sort of don't involve dog training. They're just life experiences that are, you know, just between a couple of people. Yeah. I heard this really good quote the other day, and it was from a guy called Justin Guitar. I think his name is Justin Sanderson or something like that. Uh, he's a guitarist that gives away a shitload of free content online. He's so goddamn generous with what he gives away. And like he's taught millions and millions and millions of people all over the world. Anyone who's a guitarist has probably known of Justin Guitar. He wears a flat cap. He's a pretty cool dude. He's a very good guitarist and he's very generous with his time. But he was talking about as a student himself and as a mentor to many other people, he said a piece of advice that I heard the other day, which he feels that is very beneficial, not only to himself, but many students that he's worked with and not just in guitaring, but just in life itself. And I thought it's so profound and such a simple statement, but it really does emphasize a course of action that we constantly need to think about ourselves because we hear the phrase practice makes perfect. But he says a lot of the people that he's worked with, a lot of mentors that he's studied under and people that he've worked under have said to him, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So you should try to practice mm. perfectly. I actually thought about that in dog training because there's a lot of times where people, this is not the topic that we want to talk about, and we'll get to that in a second, but there's a, a constant... It's not with everybody, but it is with a large group of people where they do focus on the concept of trying to be perfect. I don't like perfection myself because I, f- I kind of feel that perfection makes people go insane. It really bottoms people out. It brings on anxiety. It brings on feelings of not being adequate enough because they're constantly looking at what other people are doing and then thinking, well, I can't do that. I can't replicate that. I'm not good enough. you got to tell your own story, man. And that's kind of listening to Justin talking about this, there's another incredible cellist called Yo-Yo Ma, I think his name is. He was talking about how he gave up the pursuit of trying to create the perfect human experience and just create a creative human experience where people could enjoy what they're doing and work on their own journey of expression. The more I get into different things like being involved in dog training and adventuring through motorcycling. And, you know, like even I learned through that with one of my very close friends, a guy called Scott, who mentored me a lot in how to improve my motorcycle riding. But instead of trying to do it to be perfect, we do it to express creativity and enjoyment. And I think that one aspect that people really should be focusing on where I see a lot of agony and I see a lot of expression of disappointment a lot in people and where I read the Insta stories or I can see them becoming so agitated about their performance they're not focusing on the expression of enjoyment anymore they're seeing something that somebody else is doing and then reliving their disappointment that they can't replicate it with the dog they've got at the time ndtf was back on during the week and this is what kind of got me thinking about this because just dealing with students at different levels and some people can be very confident some people can be lacking confidence but we're all at different levels all the time. And that ebbs and flows and changes incredibly through each journey and experience that we have. My words of encouragement to people is just enjoy the journey. Life is way too short to be focusing on trying to be the perfect parent or the perfect dog trainer or the perfect employee. If focusing on improving yourself and excellence is something that you aspire to, hey man, don't stop. Keep pursuing that path. That's a worthy cause to pursue. But trying to find absolute perfection all the time, I really do. And I sincerely believe that it will only hurt your lifestyle. If you want to aspire to greatness, you can try and be as good as, it, as it's going to get for you and your dog. But please don't lose sight of the journey of the enjoyment of it all. Like the experience should be something that you still feel. I've done that session and yes, there was some disappointment in it but it was still fun and i know that we can do better i know that we can improve and understanding that it's all part of that educational experience that will teach you to understand you know where sometimes where the limitations are limitations in yourself and limitations in your dog Because not everybody has to be the world champion at everything. They can enjoy the experience Mm. of watching somebody achieve the um, the world champion and then share in that jubilation. But it doesn't mean that you have to be that person. Just because you're watching the Instagram movie or experience of somebody else, it means that it can inspire you. But you don't have to be that person. You don't have to do exactly what they do. And if you can't, that means you're a failure. That's not true. That just means that you know you can aspire to things and you can also learn levels of creativity and it can also make you think about other achievements that you possibly haven't thought about before. So that's my little bit of feedback on something that I was inspired through listening to a educational portal through Justin Guitar. So thanks, Justin.
0: That's cool. I think about that kind of stuff a lot. I think that shoot of excellence is really cool, Mm. but uh, what I usually encourage people and certainly what I try and do myself is to remember that good enough is exactly that. It is good enough. Mm. And I think that you need to take sort of a 50,000 foot view of things, especially say in the sports, you get people who I want to speed up my sit or, you know, a big one that we see a lot is I want more aggression in the bark and hole and stuff like that. And I kind of, I often then kind of do the breakdown, the points analysis with people and go like, yep, if we spend a lot of time, energy, effort on this exercise, we can get an extra point and a half right out of a hundred but it will come at the cost. Like you have a finite amount of time. It comes at the cost of being able to train other exercises where you're lacking more. It might come at the cost of conflict in the dog or the dog might do that one exercise so well that he makes mistakes when you give him other commands and does that one exercise. There could be lots of things like that. And so getting too narrowly focused on excellence can come at the cost of other areas. So that's why I really try and encourage people to know that good enough is exactly that. And if you want to win and you want all the titles, then good enough is going to have to be excellent. But if you want to play with your dog and you want to have fun, or if you just want to pass, you know, it depends on what you want. Like You need to really understand your goal and then go for what will be good enough to achieve that goal. And like, I'm not, you know, in no way advocating that people go for bare minimums of anything, but sometimes good enough might still be an astronomical amount. It could Mm. be the, it it still could be excellent by yours or someone else's standards, but just remembering that like good enough is good enough. It's a saying that we used to say in the army quite a lot as well is like the minimum effective dose because the minimum effective dose is effective. Right? And so like anything more than that is wasteful. And that's, you know, in regards to reinforcement with dogs, that's in regards to pressure with dogs, everything is like the minimum effective dose. That's what you should be doing. And then you kind of can't argue that in any way, shape or form because the people then say, Oh, well, you know, if you don't do enough, it falls apart. And I would say, yeah, well that it wasn't good enough and it wasn't the minimum effective dose because it wasn't effective. Right. So if it's work, and you that's all you need to do is make sure it's working and working robustly and reliably and all that kind of stuff and then move on to the next task and, and keep moving that way you know when you're I know you're talking about guitar and life in general and that kind of stuff but I always kind of frame that stuff when I'm thinking about it especially for our audience sake in regards to people that are looking to achieve things with their dogs and you know very often you see people, because of their pursuit of excellence or they want the perfect score, they never actually hit the field Mm. because they know that they won't be able to get that. And it's like, you know, if that's what you really want, then fair enough. Like it's you and your jogs journey. You do what you need to do, but there's plenty of people who will tell you they're a competitor in a sport, but have not actually ever competed in the sport because they're training to go for the perfect world champion level score their first time coming onto the field. And I think, you know, like you need to test and adjust with everything. You do things, you see how it goes. You put it out. You you ask your dog to do something in controlled environment. Doesn't work. You okay? Test and adjust from there. We figure out what is robust and what's not. And the only way to get that is from having a go. So yeah, that's what I think. Like sometimes in the pursuit of excellence, it can get in the way of good enough.
1: That's quite profound, and it really ties in well with what I was just talking about. And it reminded me. I remember when I was a kid, and we used to have reading in class. One of our teachers used to read us. Aesop's Fables. I think it comes from Greek literature. I'd have to look that up to be accurate on it, but it talks about the fables of the fox who goes and eats the low-hanging fruit and then tries to get fruit further up in the tree and then walks away and thinks, oh, I don't want that fruit anyway because it's probably sour. It's probably sour. Yeah, there's are stories from Aesop's Fables, and I'm pretty sure – There was one about a lady who made a quilt and she believed that by cutting the end off the quilt and sewing it to the top of the quilt would make it longer. And that may have nothing to do with the Aesop's fables. It just reminded me when you were talking about how some people in life, they kind of do things like that. When you were mentioning that point about when you're trying to increase something in some area of a dog's drive or capability – you'll be robbing it from another area and you won't notice until it's further down the path and this whole point about Mm. cutting the end off the quilt to make it longer by sewing it to the top in the end you make a shorter quilt because you don't realize Mm. that you know it doesn't stack up what you're trying to do you're losing material in some way where you think you've gained you may have lost and pulled it from another area and i have seen that myself in the journey Mm. of being around decoys trainers dogs and the relationship not even just decoys but trainers dogs and handlers where And again, repeating and recycling old stories, but this is why echoing things like No More One More Time, it still comes up even this day, 30 years later. Even in NDTF, there were students in there who were saying to me, I really like that philosophy of No More One More Time. And I said, we have to think about these things. It's the reason fables or these stories or these experiences keep resurfacing is because it needs to. It's there to prevent the mistake of others. It's kind of like, off on a bit different tangent, it's kind of like when your parents tell you, you really shouldn't do this. They don't say that you can't do this, but they try and sit you down and saying, look, in my life, I experienced this, and all it does is leads to a massive shit show, or it can. Your experience may be different, but you have to be aware that when you go into these lessons in life, This is where it could possibly take you. And it's really our experience telling you that if you go down this path, this is probably what you can expect to learn from this. It may not happen, but it's very likely because it happened to us and it happened to a group of our friends and we've seen it echo through the lives of other generations or different people or our circle of friends. And it's the same thing with our dog training journey as well. So when we get out on the field and we're telling people these are the reasons why you don't keep robbing Peter to pay Paul, that goes exactly what you were talking about before. I really appreciate that because I've seen that so much in life where people are saying, I just want more. I want more of this. It really does pull into that point of it's got to be good enough. I've seen people in life, like my own father at one stage, you know, I used to be concerned that his pursuit of wanting to make more and more money, like when is enough enough? Like when do you have enough? When have you trained the dog enough? When have you pursued enough? And I do understand that our dopamine comes from remaining on this journey rather than getting to the end of the journey. I understand that. And I like that myself. It took me a while to understand it. And it's probably conversations that you and I have that have really cemented a far better understanding of how that all works and why that's important. And, you know, like I've told the story about in earlier times, why and how I understood um, how dopamine affects you when I bought a motorbike, I could really find what happened to me when the bike one day lost its gloss. And I see that in life as well. And I understand what drives people to want to push further and further. But at the cost of what? That's the question you've got to ask yourself. When I push myself this far, am I really going to experience joy? Am I really going to experience fulfillment? Am I really going to experience this holistic feeling that I'm searching for? Or am I just going to end up with further disappointment and things? That question does have to be answered by people a lot. It's something that I, I summarize a lot in other things where I say to myself, am I really happy pursuing this or am I doing it for a nefarious reason? do I really want all this or do I want it to be more simplistic? There there was an episode I was watching the other day, uh, yesterday, I was watching an episode called The Good Doctor and it's the latest season. There's a character in there who it's a female character and she becomes a doctor because her uncle is the head of the hospital. She finally reveals to him right at the end, like she gets herself fired and she reveals to him at the end, like this was never my dream. This was never my Mm. dream. This just kept you all off my back. She said, all I want to pursue is a much more simplified life. I don't want to be a great Mm. doctor and I don't want to be this great person. But you all had aspirations for me. And she said, I felt I was letting you all down. This is not me telling you, go and – completely upend your life. But I am suggesting to you that sometimes you need to rethink or have a course correction sometimes in a lot of things you're doing, even your dog training. And there's things that you said, Pat, where people are so pursuant on reaching that perfect score point that they're too afraid to get out on the field in fear of failure, in fear of letting themselves mm. down or having people think that they're not all that, where they lose the ability to share in that experience, to find out now I know where my game is weak and now now I know where I need to improve on or like I've reached the limitation with this dog this is as far as it goes with me and this dog and that's fine we can enjoy other things together or I can have this dog as my pet and and get another dog that I could also work with if I want to pursue a sport lots of people have done that around the world lots of people have shifted gears and and changed but at the cost of some not permanent but some sudden disappointment that they'll have to experience it happens
0: Mm. while you're talking then thinking about uh your guitar buddy and he says practice makes permanent. It's a cool Cool. saying. I've heard that, you know, plenty of times that practice makes permanent. And there's that idea of, you know, you can just get really good at doing something badly the more you do it. Right. Can you think of a time when you've done that, where you've like deeply developed a bad habit, like something that You know, whether it was a superstitious behavior that you did or something like that, that became a part of the behavioral sequence or something that, you know, just a bad habit and you knew it, but you'd done it so much that you couldn't shake it. Can you think of a a time like that?
1: Oh, yeah. I recall a time that I built a contingent behavior with Harley where at one stage I had such a beautiful recall with him. Like it wasn't the recalls that you see now where dogs are slamming into people and staring up at them, but he had a really nice recall. He'd run in and he'd sit perfectly in front of me. But what I was doing was I was building this behaviour of calling him to me and then immediately getting him to go around. So I was building the contingency of instead of it Mm -hmm. becoming A behaviour and then B behaviour, what we did was we amalgamated accidentally the two of them and created C behaviour where he'd run to me and then he'd start moving around behind me. Like I'd get angry with him and he'd become like afraid and disappointed because he could see that this was only going to lead to correction. But he he was doing exactly what I trained him to do. I kept thinking, this is the way to do it. You come to me, then you go around. You come to me, you go around. Well, he, as far as a dog goes, they amalgamate behaviours, and he kept thinking to to himself, well, that's what I do. But why not shorten this behaviour, run to you, and then return to the heel position? So he'd become halfway Mm -hmm. around my back, and I'd say, no, and I'd try and stop him from doing it. And then that had a real breakdown in his faith of wanting to come back to me, and it affected the speed of the recall from something that was going really well He'd return really fast. He'd come in really fast. But because we didn't have any randomization in between the exercises and I kept repeating the same behavior, he amalgamated it. I punished him for it. It affected everything. So the whole chain exploded and like everything started falling apart. That itself was a big learning experience for me. And even at the time, I didn't get what was going on. I was so invested in what was happening and and so egotistical about this whole exercise I kept thinking the dog was stupid. He'd just lost the plot where I hadn't realized, no man, he's doing exactly what you're teaching him to do. Everything as far as shaping individual criteria and then chaining it together. That's exactly what the dog had done. And I was just too blind and mm. stupid at the time and too inexperienced to know what I'd done wrong.
0: Anticipation. Like that's a funny one. There's a question at the Popo schools on the test. I don't know. I haven't seen the test in a couple of years. I don't know if it's still there, but there's one that's like when a dog begins to anticipate, exactly that scenario it kind of paints a similar scenario when a dog begins to anticipate the command, what should you do? And the unlikely but correct answer on that, you know, that says correct the dog, reset the behavior, there's all these kinds of things. And the unlikely but correct answer is reward the dog for having done the wrong thing essentially because his anticipation is actually your fault so by doing anything other than rewarding the dog and then coming up with a plan in future how to stop that by you know reinforcing earlier or creating a barrier or something like that there's so many risks associated with that and it's it's really interesting because you, you mentioned them all in that there's a couple of things you can kind of shut the dog down a little bit from ever wanting to learn in a new way in the future if you punish mm. because your every behavior that you're teaching relies on the dog taking a shortcut right so you're putting in all these steps the lure the help into the behavior and especially if it's a complex skill every step makes the step before it redundant often. Right. So like the dog has to be able to willing to try something new, cut a piece out in order to progress. And if you've taught a dog to do that, and then he does it in a place where you're not used to, right? Like, well, we're not where you're not used to, but where you don't want it. And it's a function of having, you know, not reinforced the sit in front of you and then always calling for the finish next to you to give reinforcement there. You can then kind of trap the dog a little bit to think, Oh well, uh, it's too dangerous for me to make progress. Like doing anything other than exactly what I know to do. If I try and make leaps, and if I try and show understanding, or if I try and put together this puzzle by myself, that's dangerous for me because that can lead to punishment or yeah, you know, whatever it leads to. not helplessness. Depends. You know. Depends. It doesn't really matter what form of training you're going to do, whether you're going to physically like positive punish the dog, or you're going to give a non-reinforcing marker, anything like that. What you're punishing in that moment is the dog reading the play and making forward progress yeah, you can fix that particular issue, but that's going to come back and bite you in the ass later on when it's time to add the next step in a chain of behaviors that you're teaching. The dog goes, no, no, I, I see what you want here. I'm not prepared to do it. I'm going to wait for some like expressed implicit command to do that because in the past when I've anticipated and tried to give offer you what I knew you wanted, I've gotten trouble for it. So that's kind of one of the the interesting fallouts, but then there's also the idea that you could make the whole behavior aversive as well. If the dog has joined that entire sequence in his head, if it, if he's put that entire thing together, you're not just making the act of like the the finish aversive without permission, it could be the entire recall. And now your dog doesn't want to recall. And, and very few people would ever put together that that's the reason. Like they would start looking for other reasons and, and, and talk about not enough positive motivation versus not realizing that they stole from themselves with that negative motivation. It's a really good example of that practice making permanent. And then when you identify a problem, having a solution maybe it works now. And I like in that instance, like would encourage people to pay the dog, right? Like just go, fuck, that's my bad. You read the play, here's your payment for there. And then coming up with a solution in the future, like interrupting him before he goes to make that next step and, and noting that that anticipation is a good thing. That's what's crazy about it, right? When you're trying to explain to people that anticipation is good. We're glad the dog did it. I
1: just have a quick interjection there because in creating that problem for myself in later times, I worked out how to resolve it. If I could go back in time now and talk to my younger self, the way that I would have resolved it is do exactly that. I would have rewarded the dog for doing that behavior because it's my fuck up. And I would have said, I own that. I'm going to reward you for it. And I would have still kept that behavior under that cue. Then what I would have done was to change that. I would have created a different behavior under a different cue. Again, listening to you talking about that re-jogged memories when in the early days of ADT where we were stepping off and then popping the dog, you know, like in giving the heel command at the same time. And that was really, really, really Mm -hmm. early in the day. What we found was that we were creating a learned helplessness environment for the dog at that point in time. There was no way to avoid the correction. So the dog basically gave up trying and it was really – suppressing drive in the dog we all had a big workshop because we realized this is not right and the attitudes of the dogs were really depleting like we could start to see their attitude drop and in some of the dogs that were afflicted by it that did want to do is exactly what you said gave up trying because they realized you know like if i try to do this i'm only going to get corrected anyway so what's the fucking point so you could actually see depression set in when you said the word heal like heal didn't invoke anything appetitive anymore it was totally adverse Instead, for those dogs, we changed it to fuss or close. So we used a different word and recreated the behavior under a different cue, which created liveliness in the behavior again. What we could then do, effectively, some people would even use heel as a shutdown, like they would suppress the the dog by saying the word heel. So if the dog went to do something, they could say heel and the dog, you you could instantly see the dog go, ah and completely shut down, closed down. By saying the word fuss or close, you could actually reinvigorate the behavior with the dog and build the enthusiasm because nothing linked to that word anymore was adverse. It was all built around appetitive behavior. There are times where you have to rethink the linkages of what you're doing, or as you said, you know, like sometimes you just have to, Bury that cue altogether. That cue just has to totally go extinct, and anything associated with it, it just go has to go into the extinction basket. Because any mention of it around the dog will generate a different form of behavior than the one that you originally anticipated doing, because it was built on a lack of understanding and a lack of correct formation around building that chain together. We do often make these mistakes sometimes, and not think about it. And in the past, you and I we've expressed considerably the importance of second set of eyes and having mentors and having coaches or having experience around you that people can say, Hey, don't do that because the next time you do that, if you keep formulating this behavior, all you're doing is entrenching a timeline that's going to completely go corrupt on your training platform. Like you, it'll completely fall away. It'll bottom out. And where you think you're going, like you believe you're heading in a right direction, but I'm telling you this is going left on you all of a sudden. Like it's completely branched in a different direction altogether.
0: Yeah. You know, we had a topic, but instead of going to that, I want to keep sort of teasing out some of this stuff because it's fun. Where you were just talking about they're changing the queue. So that's one of the questions that I think we've been asked many times when people sort of want to talk about, show topics and it comes up in the discussion group quite a bit, is the idea of poisoned cues. What is that and when should you change the command on a behavior? Last week I was working with a bunch of military working dog handlers and, you know, great dudes, super intelligent and amazing dogs. So it's just kind of my favorite thing to work with, right? Because you've got people who are highly motivated and and can understand very complex things and you got the the right dogs for it. It's it's the dream training for me. I love doing it. Mm. And we were discussing the dogs names as well as like changing some of their commands and I explained it probably the best I think I ever have. You know, when he's kind of like, I was explaining, I was like, wow, this is really making sense. I don't know if I've ever made sense on this topic as well before I've got to remember this, but changing a dog's name, I think is a really interesting one because I think sometimes Certainly with a lot of pet dogs, you see that their name is actually a non-reinforcing marker to them. Mm. And, and like when you get a rescue, I often encourage people to change the dog's name when they get a rescue because you don't know what association has been made to that name. I'm curious like how much a dog understands its name is its name versus a word that just, you know, has a value. I don't know how much a dog really identifies the self, you know, I, I really don't know. We uh, usually call the I name know, an informal recall. Yeah. Yeah. But then a lot of people, when their name is an informal recall, one of the reasons that they're doing that is usually because the dog's about to get up to something they don't want him to get up to. And so the dog is, you know, like you're out walking around with the dog and he goes to sniff another dog and you get a look at that dog and you think, nah, that's probably an unsafe situation. You call him back. So- And if you don't reinforce in that moment, like, you know, not everybody's reinforcing every time because your informal recall is just that sort of, Hey, come back to this general vicinity in using it that way. It, the dog's name off very often becomes a non-reinforcing marker so that it, it kind of demotivates the dog. You, you, when you call the dog's name, you're essentially saying to it, what you think you're about to get, you're not going to get come back to me. And like, not that a non-reinforcing marker is a terrible thing. In fact, you should have one, but I certainly would prefer it not be the dog's name. And like, I try and, you know, I try very hard to keep my dogs quite appetitive to their names where they, they know that it just predicts a command and absent it, it can just mean like a very low chance of reinforcement. So like, I you know, say their name, give them food, say their name, give them food. And then you go to like very quickly go to an intermittent schedule on that. But then the second part I was thinking about was that, uh, poisoned commands. And when would you change the command and what you said exactly ties in with what I was trying to explain to these guys the other week in that sometimes I'll change the command. I used to, because I think it was sort of early imprinting. People told me this, like when I first started looking into dogs and I probably don't agree with it anymore was I, you know, I was told initially that if your dog has ever disobeyed a command, then you should change it, especially the recall. And that was something that I kind of bought holus bolus that you want the dog, especially with its recall to know you can never disobey that. And once they have, then they learned that they can again in future that was big in the the very early circles that I had started in dogs. And I don't agree with that at all anymore. The idea was if the command has ever not worked or is consistently not working, then you shouldn't be using that as the command. You should change the command. And I don't agree with that at all because I just think if it's not working, it's because the dog doesn't know it. So you just haven't taught it. right? So like, you just got to do a better job of teaching it. The only time I would actually change the command is not, when the dog is doing the wrong thing in the command. Now he might be doing the wrong thing in two ways. He might be not doing what you've asked him for, or he might actually be doing something else because there's a misunderstanding of the commands. But in both of those, I would just go for a retraining of it, Uh, especially if the command had to be a particular thing because of, you know, people share the dog, dog has to have particular commands or in some sports you have to use particular commands or whatever. The only time I would ever go to the the hassle of changing the name of the dog or the command of the dog is when I can certainly see a scar attached to it. So like when there's an aversion to it, like mm. when, when you can give, when you can change the emotional state of the dog by just giving the command, even if the behavior that you want is clearly the same, it, even if the dog does it perfectly, I would still change it. If I notice that the dog is, you know, uh, has an emotional attachment, like a negative emotional response yeah, it's to become the, classical. The command. Yeah. And we see that sort of like exactly in the example you just gave, you know, because it's not uncommon. You see people use like negative reinforcement to train a behavior. Then they get to the point where they're giving that the pop that acts as a reinforcer of the command. And they forget to ever take that to a variable schedule and give the dog opportunities to beat that pop. Mm. Or or if they're too coercive with that negative reinforcement and aren't able to use that negative reinforcement as a game. Like, and that's one of the cool things I've really only learned to do over the last sort of 12 months. And, And certainly it was a big part of Ivan's courses where I learned how to do that. Like, and kind of knew it intuitively, but hadn't really ever effectively been able to put it into practice that well, where this negative reinforcement is a game and you can win the game by beating me to do it. And I can win the game by getting it onto you. And like, then every now and again, the dog does get a pop because I beat him. Right. And that shouldn't demotivate the dog. In fact, that should motivate him more because he'll be like, oh, fuck you. You got a point. I want to try and get a point on the next one. Whereas, especially like if you pop the dog every time and you've got him on a short leash so he can never beat you, or if you give the pop at the exact same time as the command so he never gets the opportunity to read the play and act in a way that would make him avoid it, for sure it can become aversive, as well as if people are then trying to do the same thing with an e-collar, because a dog can never beat the e-collar. So I think that's what like with the prong or something like that. Yeah. The dog really can beat your ability to put it on. Like if you're fair with the way you do it, you give the command and then like immediately after, you know, towards the end of the command, go to give that dog the pop that acts as a reinforcer of the command he can act fast and beat it. And that's a point for him. It's like playing the game of slaps, you know, like Mm. where you got to pull your hand out of the way of the other person. It's like, Oh, you just didn't act fast enough. So you got slapped and it should never be demotivating that slap. It should be motivating to want to try again, to beat it again. But the tricky part is with an e-collar, you can never beat it. And so you, it requires a much more skill to keep the dog convinced that he can and that he is playing a game of slaps when you're using the e-collar. Whereas it's it's a lot easier to do that, I think, with the prong and because the dog really can beat you. He can outperform you. He can be faster than you and he can win the game for real rather than you being the orchestrator of that. But, yeah, so when people forget to go to that intermittent schedule or they, they don't forget, they just don't know to, that's where you can see that aversive. the dog might do the behaviour absolutely perfectly, but you can see – that he hates to do it because there's no way to avoid that pop. He knows that pop can get much worse and become proper compulsion and, you know, become pain compliance to do the behavior and he knows how to avoid that. But what he can't avoid is their pop creates the entry. And so that can really demotivate a dog because it's like, this is the shit sandwich I just have to eat. And there's no way for me to stop eating it. And once that's classically ingrained, then you kind of have to change the command if you wanna change that behavior because it, it's it's almost never gonna go away. I mean, it would eventually, but you gotta kinda of remember that you're putting the dog into that negative mindset every time you say that. And so Of course, like a battery, it'll go flat eventually because you stop popping. but there's a lot of depression or a lot of, you know, flatness that the dog has to go through before you get to that point. So that's why I would ever change the command, not because the dog doesn't understand it and not because the dog's not doing it. That just tells me I have to train it better. But if the, even if the dog is doing the behavior, exactly what I want, just not with the enthusiasm that I want, especially if it's not just not peak enthusiasm, it's actually negative enthusiasm that's for sure a time where I would go, hey, let's reteach this, start all over, come up with a new command and just never put you through that negative state. That's a
1: really interesting observation. I guess it's one that you generally tend to make along the way. It's very easy to talk about it and explain it in theory, well, with the hope that people will understand what it is and start to see the manifestation of that happening in front of their eyes sometimes. So you can sort of circumvent that and prevent it from happening. However, and sadly, The problem is, is it generally happens without you really knowing that it's happening. Like it's a creep on effect sometimes. And that's the disappointing thing about it where I've found – in my own experience, and it's sometimes from a lack of knowledge, so the great thing about this is that's kind of like that parental talk where, you know, your parents are coming in and sitting down with you and saying, hey, listen, these are the fuck-ups that we've made in life. This is why we're saying to you, don't do drugs or don't do this or be careful when you're having nookie for the first time. Like, there is a lot of things that can go wrong. And this is exactly the same thing we're trying to emphasize in preparation for dog training or when you're going out on the field or when you're starting to explore shaping and chaining of behaviors. There is so much that can go right, and it generally will, but there's also like a considerable amount that can go wrong if you're not prepared for it or if you don't look at each practice session or each training session as the start and finish of every day. Like you need to analyze that, and this is why often I encourage students in NDTF or anybody who's listening, start a training journal or have a blog or something to yourself, like it's a memorandum to yourself that you can basically say, today went really well, or I believe it went really well. The reason why I believe that is because the dog expressed outcomes in this manner, or you can say to it, like something appears to be going wrong here. And that may be the insert where you, you think to yourself, now I need somebody to look at what's going on in my training and just course correct me because it might be a minor thing right now. And I don't want to turn it like it might be a micro and I don't want to turn it into a macro Or it could be well and truly heading into the fields of a macro and I need to find out how to dig my way out of it. This is why I do encourage people. Film yourself. You've encouraged people. Film yourself. Like you film a lot of behaviors that you've done and you've looked back on things and you and I've had conversations where you said, you know, like I was watching myself doing something the other day and- I thought everything was going gangbusters until I watched myself in the video and realized by moving in this direction, I affected the dog's behavior or the outcome, especially in decoying. Like it's important for decoys to watch themselves work because I've often seen people who are decoying on fields And they think they're killing it, but what they're doing is they're fucking crushing the dogs that they're working. You know, like they're not only crushing their spirit, but the way that they're moving or the way that they're hitting a dog or way that they're impacting it is because their ego is getting in front of the results of the dog is they're hurting the dog. So they're making the session quite aversive, but they don't realize that because they they feel like it feels good or it feels natural to what they're doing. And until somebody can actually sit down with them and saying, Hey man, I know it probably feels good and it probably in your mind it looks good, but it looks terrible on the outside. And I'm not saying that to insult you. I'm not saying that to hurt your feelings or to crush your ego. What I'm trying to do is tell you, you can be doing this a far better way. Like the experience that you as a decoy can have and the experience that the dog can have, everybody should walk away from this as a win-win. Like this whole thing holistically Mm. should be, you know, like in preparation of preparing the dog for whatever you're doing Regardless of whether we're talking about decoying or we're talking about a handler, owner of a dog, just doing simplified healing, like you can get lost in the moment and not really see where this is going because you're not looking at it with like a 360 degree view. You're kind of looking at it for a very simplified and very two-dimensional look rather than that three-dimensional look that we were trying to talk about before. I can just see Valerie popping her head up in the
0: background. Yeah. I'm sorry for a kiss. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's one of the big values in reviewing your own footage. If you don't have a coach or someone nearby that can help you or critique you or whatever, being able to do that yourself, especially as a decoy. You know, these days you buy the latest GoPro can do like 240 frames per second. Mm. Right. So like you can, you can watch super slow-mo versions of your own catch and see, you know, the things that you just would never be able to read. Yeah, you know, you can just slow that down eight times. Right. So you can see things in eight times slow motion that you can never see in real life and make critiques on and judgments on that. You just w- can't, can't do without that. Some of my best clients have, and not just in sports, but in all kinds of dog training have logs that they keep with their dogs are video diaries of it that they just put on YouTube and there it's a private playlist. Like it's not like they put it up for people to see, but it's just a great way to store that footage. It means it's not clogging up your phone, you know, like you film a 20 minute session or whatever. They upload that to YouTube with nothing but the date as the title as a private video. And then you can delete it off your phone. You've got that record there. And then Mate, that, like the people that do that and they book a session with me and send me a link to that. And they're like, Hey, this is where I'm at. And this is where I want to get to. That's the best because now I can go through and I can review and see, like, you know, maybe when people say they've got an issue with a particular behavior or whatever, I can go back through that footage. We can do it together and say, Oh, there, that's where it started right? Like that's where you deviated from what you were intending to do here. That's the session. We see the behavior. Now we can, we know where we can go back to, like, what's the last breadcrumb that we had where we can go back and find the the right place for the dog to move forward from. So, yeah. I mean, we've said that a million times, film your sessions. It can be a bit of a pain in the ass. I get it. And and one of the things that I think is hard, that's why, you know, you make a private videos and whatever, but I, I find it, you know, I film a lot of my training. I used to, and then I stopped for a little while and I'm started doing it again. And And the reason I'm doing it again is for making social media content. I was making a video the other day. So like I get comments about how I clap a lot at the end of some of the reels that I'm making it. I, there's a real reason for that. And I was making a, I wanted to make a, a reel of me clapping. It was just, and I found this song that was clapping in it. And so I, I started adding that together. It's on my Instagram, you can check it out. But I had to go through heaps of footage of sessions that were recently and what I noticed was in all the sessions where I was just playing, just training for, for training's sake, I was watching it all and I was so much better than the sessions that were videos I was trying to get a specific thing for, right? Like, so I just noticed in, if I just go out and I'm like, I'm going to set up the camera and I'm going to train. And if something cool happens, I can make an Instagram really out of it. Those sessions are like magic to watch, right? They go really well. I'm in tune with the dog, everything's perfect. But then there's sessions where I go, because of a video that I'm trying to give a demo for or whatever, I want the particular footage when I go out with an ulterior motive of like, this is what I'm going to work on. I'm going to get footage of this. Not like I'm going to work on it, but I'm going to get footage of the finished thing. None of those sessions are as clean. Mm. None of those sessions are as precise. And that's, I think that's one of the issues. It's why a lot of people, certainly myself filming your own training. If you know that people are going to watch it, you're no longer in the moment. It's kind of like being it's like you're training in front of a crowd, right? Like it's, and you're training for the crowd, not for the dogs. I get it. it it's tricky. You got to find the right balance in that space. And i like, I'm still trying to figure out that balance every, every goddamn day.
1: You know, it was funny again, hearing you talking about your experience with that, because the other day Narelle and I, I got her to handle Macho for me while I was doing some bite work with him. And we went out in the shed and it lasted all about two minutes. And she said, "Oh, is it finished already?" And I said, "Yeah, he just did it perfectly. I don't want to go past that." And I said, "Past experience has told me to stop right there. That's again, that's the no more, one more time rule." Yeah. But I could see aggravation in her face because she was kind of thinking, "We've just set up to do all this and come out here, and you've just pulled me away from doing my study. I dedicated like twenty minutes to this, and this is—I think this is a mistake that a lot of handlers and a lot of inexperienced trainers do, and certainly I have made this mistake a lot of times. I think, well, if I've gone to all the effort to set this up." then by God, I'm going to get my fucking 20 minutes out of it. Whereas the dog dictates what happens next. The dog always dictates, you know, how far you push in a session or what you do in that session. And forgetting that is breaking, like there are rules that you can bend, but that's breaking the rule. That's where you mm. start manifesting behaviors that you really don't want. So much I did, you know, like I, did, I think I did two or three bites with him and the third bite or second or third bite, whatever numeration order it was, by the time I'd got to the end of it, it was it was fine. It was exactly what I was aiming for and allowing a 20-minute session to try and get it out of him, to tease it out of him. He just had so much enthusiasm that he just went crash, and he bit me perfectly, or bit the, the – I shouldn't say me, but he bit the device that I was using, and I thought, that's perfect. There was plenty of pressure in it. He got right up to the back molars. To push him to do that again would be futile. So I said to Narelle, thanks, you can, you can mm. go now, and I took him out in the field and threw the ball with him and just, you know, dicked around with him for – 40 minutes or something like that just to reward him for having such a good session because I want him to think about, A, I love doing this, and I know he wanted to do more of it, but I just didn't want to risk going over what I did. The old me would have done it. I would have probably tried to push another two two or three out of him. But that's the sour fruit that I tried to deliver to other students, to say, don't do that, man. You know, like I have to eat that yeah. bitter pill myself sometimes and think, you know, I'm enthusiastic, I'm a trainer, I know that I could probably get more at him. But, you know, you said early on, at what cost do I risk mm. cutting the end off that quilt and sewing it to the top and shortening the quilt overall mm. or do I get more expression out of the dog overall in long term because he's thinking to himself, man, that was a killer session, how do I get back to that again? So by the time I brought him out again – fantastic he just roared through the behavior again and again it was another short session because i thought that's two out of two then i did a third one with him that's three out of three you know like we had three really killer sessions with him because he was just expressing himself really really well through those sessions and by luck and by experience and all of that combination falling well together we actually happened to get a good result with the dog so let me ask you i've talked Mm -hmm. about this we've bantered backwards and forwards you've asked me about a question where you know, I've recognised that I've done something wrong. Tell me about something in your own experience that you've realised that you've unwittingly broken a chain or extended a session beyond where it should have been.
0: What's something that really resonates? In line with exactly what I was just saying. So, you yeah, know, might be making uh, some content and it's absolutely in line with the no more, one more time because I have mixed feelings about the way that that sort of saying can be perceived because sometimes... People, I think, cut themselves short in how much they could train in a session because they recite that mantra no more one more time. They do something that goes well and they're like, okay, that's it. And certainly remember that black I had, like I fucked up so many things with that dog and that dog was aversive to getting things right mm. because I was in the no more, one more time. And so the dog would do something like I would have it in my mind that this is where I want to get to in this session. And she was the dog that I really learned to shape with. Right. Like I hadn't done a lot of shaping before her free shaping anyway. And I had like a target in my mind of, I want you to, you know, do this part of the behavior. I want you to go to the marker box and I want you to, the marker board and I want you to bark once or whatever. And as soon as she did that, I would jackpot and end the session because I had it really firmly in my mind like that. I hit what I got my target and I'm not going to keep flogging it. And what I for sure had misread in her was that she was ready for more right? And she wanted more. She wanted to, the session to go longer. And I should have like not jackpotted or I should have, you know, like jackpotted a bit, but not like a session ending jackpot. Then also what I was doing really poorly with that dog was ending sessions on jackpots instead of then going for the, let's just spend time together. Let's just do things you already know sort of stuff. And that's why like, for me, it's kind of taken two forms where if I'm teaching a dog something new and I have it in my mind okay, this is what I want to get to today. Like I want, you know, a good example is this in our Patreon, we had that muzzle video, right? Like where I, I taught my dog to hit the clack, clack with the muzzle and I filmed every session and showed it and gave commentary along the way. And the sessions are all sort of between two and five minutes long. And, In the past, that would have been me done. Like that would have been, I did the two to five minutes. I got what I wanted. Like I had it in my mind that the dog is at a certain level and I intend to progress him to this other benchmark that I've created in my mind, like totally arbitrary, but what I've decided is a a good outcome for the day. And the moment the dog hit that, which would be most of the time, because I have realistic expectations, I would stop and I would be like, that's it. We're done and put the dog away and get the next dog out. I think that was one of the biggest mistakes. That was one of the biggest traps that I got myself caught in for a long time. And it wasn't until I realized like how to, I think I better much better learned how to compartmentalize different parts of sessions within the one session and not have the dog figure that out. So how to do the two to five minutes of the new learning right at the start where the dog's fresh and where the dog is, you know, like he's at his peak level of drive. He's, he's highly motivated. I've controlled the arousal to be effective for what I wanted. I do that. And then I can transition to chaining old behaviors together or just playing with the dog or doing, you know, whatever, like whatever it was that meant that the dog didn't draw too much distinction between how he feels during the learning phase of the session. And then the the practice phase of other things in the session, like they just drift into one and the other. And I think even as I was learning to do that, it was obvious to the dog, this is the learning phase. And now this is the practice. No, it felt like two sessions because what I've gotten much better at now is bleeding those two things in together so that it's my hope that when I'm training a dog in this way, the dog doesn't realize that there were two components to this. And so then when I real when I get my new behavior to the point where I just want to work it into a chain with the old behaviors, I think I'm much better now at, at transitioning that in without the dog realizing – like it all just seems like the same thing to the yeah. dog. It all just seems like the same session. And the other thing I've gotten much better at as well And I've always felt like this, but to be honest, I probably just never spoke about it and didn't realize how important it was, was allowing the dog to have breaks during the session. Mm. So like no more one more time doesn't mean like I got what I wanted and that's it for the day. It doesn't even mean that's it for the session. It can mean like that's it for a couple of minutes. And one of the things that I've really started letting dogs do wherever it's safe and practical to do it is you know, giving, if they're in, if they're this kind of dog is like letting them win the toy or whatever and letting them go and chill out with it in for a few minutes and letting it soak. Like that's one of the big things that I've found in training lately is that I really like to let information soak with the dog. And I truly believe that sometimes if you're teaching new behaviors, then you, you get the right thing and you give the dog a jackpot. That is kind of the no more, one more time. And if it's a toy, you know, reward event jackpot, I let the dog go over. And if, like I say, it depends on the type of dog and what they find reinforcing. But if they, you know, the typical Malleys that I'm working with a lot, they like to possess stuff and they go and possess it for a little while. And in the past that would have been like, I would have been concerned about that. People say that's the dog checking out or whatever. And the dog's paying you off because he's left you, And I'm like, no, I I think I really, truly think now that that's him letting that information soak. And he's whether he is over there thinking about it or whether he's thinking about licking his ass and chasing chasing butterflies, it doesn't matter. What's happening is that, like, you know that that information that we just gave is going out of the RAM and onto the hard drive, Mm. right? Like he's letting it settle down and it's becoming permanent memory. And then more often than not, when I sit there, I kind of. Like wait for the dog to make eye contact with me, and then I invite him back to play, and then we can keep going again. So it's not that it's like no more one more time as in like don't do it again when you get the best rep. It might mean just not right there and then. Like the other part as well, you know, when you just want to, you see people do this, and certainly I've been guilty of it plenty of times where everything's going great in the session. Say a session exactly as I say, I'm teaching something new at the start or sharpening up something. Then I go play with the dog for ages. And then because it all went so well at the end of it, I'm like, Oh, I'll just do that first bit one more time. Like that's the kind of no more, one more time that I think is problematic because now, you know, I'm doing it towards the end of the session. You see people do it just because they can, and they want to finish on a high. Like we talk about training should finish on a high and it should finish on a high for the dog. And what you're chasing is, is it finishing on a high for you? And so like, you know, like imagine a session where you train for like two to five minutes, then that's the new part. Then you change some behaviors together and you just play with the dog for another 20 minutes or whatever. And then on your way back to the car, you ask the dog for that part from the first bit. It's because you want to feel validated at the end of the session. Like, yeah, I made progress. And I want my last memory of the session to be this progress that I made. I want to walk away with that last memory. And then of course it doesn't go well because you know, like it, Hasn't soaked yet, and the dog's not as as enthusiastic. He's not as driven. It's the end of the session. Maybe he's full of food. Maybe he's tired. He's had his fill of the ball, whatever, or he's read the play that we're going back to the car, and he's switched gears in his mind and isn't an, no longer in that kind of working mode. And when you ask for that that behavior that's not quite finished and it goes poorly, that's where we start chasing our tail. And because we need to finish on a high that's where you start like within your own mind, the dopamine cycle kicks in and you start chasing because you, when the dog does the wrong behavior, that's non-reinforcing for you or like not non-reinforcing as in negative punishment. I mean, like, not reinforcing at all, which then causes the dopamine spike for the next opportunity to try it. And that's how you create those aversive responses. And the dog doesn't understand it yet. The only way to get him to do it is to now compel him to do it. Of course, compulsion always works. And if it's at the back end, he's not doing it because he doesn't understand it or because he's tired and the compulsion ends up causing a bit of a scar to the behavior and you set yourself back. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the, like one of the things I, I find myself explaining to people sometimes is that that, No more, one more time doesn't mean you have to do two minute sessions. You could do fucking hour and a half long sessions. What it means is like, don't flog a dead horse, right? And when the dog is making progress, keep letting him make progress, but then don't push it past what you think is possible anyway. And if there's any doubt in your mind about whether a dog's going to perform the action, don't do it. Right? Like don't, don't ask for it. That's one, that's one of the things I kind of, I had to work really hard to get to that point myself because your ego kicks in, mm-hmm. right? Like you're like, and especially if there's people watching and there's people training and It happens all the time because, you know, where I train, it's just a normal park. It's just people with their normal dogs. And when they see a Malinois with any level of training, they they don't know what it is and they stop and they stare and like people are watching. And I might do something really cool with my dog and then you want to do it again because people are like, holy shit, show me again. And it's like, yeah, cool, I will. And it's like, no, because that was like eight behaviors strung together and exactly like you spoke about, you know, ages ago was now that's going to – he went through those eight behaviors – to get their reinforcer, not knowing if it was going to come on the first, second, third, fourth, all the way through to eighth. But because I just did it and I want to show it off to someone who's watching, he knows it's coming at the eighth. So it isn't going to go well, right? Mm. Because I just did that exact same behavior. And this is something I find that I do, especially again, like if I'm filming content and I want to show something like recently, I wanted to show, you know, retrieving a prong collar. So I filmed it, I set up, I did it, and it all went perfect, right? And then I was like, just in case. Yeah, I can't tell the focus where I am. So just in case, I'll do it again. And then it went better the second time. So then I was like, "Oh, that's a better version. Oh, that's the one I want to use in the video." But just in case that's not in focus, I'll do it again. And like, I was stuck. I was stuck in a thing of like doing it over and over and showing my dog the same thing. And then of course he starts to anticipate. I've just done like six retrieves of the same item in the same circumstance, standing in the exact same spot because I have to do it in the same spot to make sure that everything's in focus. And then. Of course what happens, he jumps the retrieve. Of course. But like, I throw the item and he goes off to take it before he gets the command. Like, what the fuck else was that? That was the only outcome that could have come of that. I know that, but I got stuck in a cycle of doing it. And because I was showing off that he can retrieve his prong <laughs> collar, when he breaks and goes to retrieve it early, there's nothing I can do about it. And <laughs> he's got nothing <laughs> <on>. <laughs> And I, mate, I still have the footage of myself. I was watching it the other day when I was looking for that clapping stuff. I was like, you can see see me look at myself like in my shoulders drop, I'm like, I'm an idiot. I've fallen into the trap of this is no more one more time. This is what we're talking about when we're saying to avoid The no more, one more time. It's not sessions have to be two minutes long to five minutes long. That's not it. It's that don't flog a dead horse and don't put yourself in a position where the dog either starts going, Hey, this behavior isn't valuable to me or I've hit the limit of what I can give here. So, and you're still not happy. So what's the point in even giving that, right? There's lots of variances on what it can mean, but what it doesn't mean is that you have to do a two minute session and put the dog away because I misunderstood that for a long time not a long time, but long enough to fuck up some dogs, right. To cause some problems with dogs that that little black Malley, she would avoid, she would figure out, she's like, yeah, I read the play here. I'm not doing that. Even though I know it full well, I'm not doing it because I know that's the end of the session and that's the trigger to it. So she would kind of feign, she would take steps back in what she was, what, what I knew she was capable of. And then the obvious answer is pressure. Oh, well, I'll have to push you to do it because you're not doing it. And then now we're doubly fucking up the end of the behavior. The dog doesn't want to get there because it actually announces negative punishment. Even though you're going to jackpot the dog with food or toys or whatever, you're also going to stop the session. And if the dog's super affiliative, likes to work like, you know, most good dogs do that stopping the session is what's going to override whatever you give them prior to it and giving them that sort of thing prior to it announces the end of the session becomes a conditioned response. And then the only way if, if you're stuck in the model like I was, the only way to fix that is to compel the dog, use more pressure. And now you're, you're hitting it from both angles. Mm. The dog doesn't want to do the main thing because I'm only doing it to avoid pressure. And if, when I end up doing it, it's the end of the session. So the dog's was like, fuck that behavior completely. And you create flat behaviors. Yeah. So that's my story.
1: That was a fantastic and a really beautiful rendition of what no more, one more time does. So I'm not even going to try and expand on that because it was, it was, it was really well explained and it's one of the questions that I get asked a lot because you and I have been talking about it so extensively throughout the podcast that I often do get students on NDTF or just random conversation where people say, so I should just end everything. And I think what you just said summarizes exactly what we've been trying to express and may have sometimes done a poor job of it through the podcast. But when I have told other people, no, it doesn't mean that you end all all sessions it just means that criteria at that part in time you park that and then you can go and work on something Mm. independently especially for scent detection dogs you know because people say to me well when do i know that i'm ready to go again and i usually say well i allow the dog to express that when the dog is starting to nag me Mm. again And saying, you know, like my battery is charged, I'm ready to go. And you can see that in the performance. And it's a skill that you learn to read the dog's behavior and you can see it. And that's why I said, that's when I do it. When my dog is kind of like pulling my leg like a child saying, can we, can we, can we? I'll say, yeah, your attitude is worth rewarding. So I definitely want to get back into the session now with you. But I don't want to deplete your battery when you're doing it. So yeah, really, really well summarized, mate. I really appreciate that. It also reminds me of a word that became really important to me when I was a younger trainer and I've transitioned that through all of my career as a trainer. And that is the word randomization because that really Mm -hmm. parries into everything that we're talking about as trainers in, let's say, for example, you are trying to develop the sequence of a chain and some of the mistakes and many of the mistakes that I've made and I've watched other trainers make themselves is, as you said, they make it too apparent of what's happening next when they're trying to formulate this chain that the dog Emphasizes what's going to happen next, but then does a poor job because you're not ready in your mind to link the chain together. But you know, like dogs are eternal opportunists, they're always looking towards getting to the end as quickly as they possibly can. They're the sort of dogs like, if you give them the, a square, they're trying to route it into a circle as quickly as they possibly can. And that's effective, that's efficient, you know, that's what they're trying to do. And that's as a trainer, that's what we're trying to exploit. And if we're clever enough, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to take all the rough edges of it and use that routing tool to take everything away that's no longer necessary to be there anymore. But that happens through randomization, especially when you're developing criteria and then you're trying to formulate the best way to link this together, whether it through a forward chaining system or a backward chaining system, whatever you know methodology needs to work in order for it to link together well. However, if you, make that abundantly clear because every training session is always stacking up to portray what's coming next. Then the dog will read into it and understand, I know what's going to happen next. So I need to do this. And then you'll go, Oh yeah, but we're not ready for that yet. Like, we've done such a poor job of the next part of the criteria that I really didn't want to integrate that now. And that's why that word randomization became so important and so validated to me throughout my career, because you, you need to start thinking to yourself jumble the order. So the dog can't guess what's coming next until you're ready to, until the dog is doing everything so well, then you can say to the dog, okay, now we're ready to integrate this chain together. Now we're ready to formulate these links. And that's why, you know, your explanation one more time, again, I'm not even going to try and layer in over the top of that because that really summarized exactly what you can do. You can do a criteria and then you can say that criteria is done. No more one more time on that criteria but I've got now B, C, D, and E over here, which I can jumble the order of that and I can work on any one of those. We can play a higher order or we can play a lower order in the exercise that we're doing, but we're going to do that instead of this, because that is done. That's well and truly cooked. Like I've got a medium rare steak there and that's perfect. That's what I want to leave there. I'm going over here to start cooking on the vegetables or something like that. And that's just my explanation of, what you would look at when you're looking at layering in different exercises that you're going to do. And again, beautifully explain what you said before. Sometimes you've just got to know when to say when overall. And, you know, you look at the dog and think a break is absolutely necessary here. You know, I think that really escalated us as trainers, especially in old ADT days when we used to do, we'd have a schedule of things that we were doing in beginner class, in intermediate or or advanced, but in between all of it, we'd say, okay, everyone, have a break, let your dog goof around for two minutes take time to go and have a wee, have a a, a drink of water, you know, go and play ball with your dog, just, you know, lie on the ground and pat him or something like that and then come back in. There were times, especially with the advanced obedience class, where we just say to the guys, you take the break when you think it's necessary. You should have yeah. a, a far more intimate relationship with your dog now. Don't wait for the trainer to tell you when to take a break. You can just excuse yourself from the group. You don't even need to say, I'm going. You just walk out the back. And you'd see this often, like people would come in and out of the class because it was their class structured their way. So instead of saying we have hard and fast rules, what we said, we're flexible on everything now to allow you to integrate in and out of this class as you see fit for the benefit of the relationship between you and your dog to emphasize what's important in developing the skill set that you guys need to have. So this this is a summary in the stories that you and I are trying to explain to people along the way in training dogs is the emphatic side of this is, Whatever story and whatever relationship that you're trying to create with your dog, the importance is, is that you develop that in whatever way that you need to, that turns out to be what's best for you guys and what you're capable of and then packaging all that up and making that into whatever it needs to be. Because the story that Pat Stewart is doing or Glenn Cook is doing may resonate with you and it may sit well with you, but you may, for whatever reason, you may be incapable of getting to that level with that style of dog. There are many great dogs who have become outstanding working dogs that would make shit detection dogs. And there are many detection dogs that would make terrible law enforcement dogs. We're all built and designed differently. And you just have to, instead of living the disappointment, you just have to look at it and say, you're not capable of being a law enforcement dog, but let's learn on this journey together, providing you've accepted that you're staying together and, you know, like that dog is going to remain in the household. Let's look at this relationship now and say to yourself, what can we learn together? How can we advance each other? How can you be the best version of yourself as a dog? And how can I be my best version of myself as a handler, as an uh, aspiring trainer, or whatever I'm trying to do? So if other people are experiencing this, this is the advice that I can then pass on to them. And then they can carry that torch on forward. The next time down the track, when I'm ready for my next dog, I've learned so much like I've really got an enriched history of learning what to look for, what to assess and what to aspire to. So yeah, that's my thoughts on it.
0: Yeah, totally. You know, as you were talking about breaks during the session, I wanted to kind of just explain a little bit how I do that and you know, how I've evolved over time. My thinking on that is it used to be, I think the foundation of allowing the dog to take breaks during the session really comes from the binary understanding of the dog being on your time or on his time. Mm. And Like all of that sort of goes back to you know effective reinforcement and markers and that kind of stuff. So I can say to the dog, "You're either under command, or you have to be doing what I say." And and if you don't, I'll hold you accountable. And if you do, then I'll I'll reinforce you. Then within that reinforcement, there's a moment where the reinforcement ends, right? So the dog does the thing, and you give the dog the reward, whatever that is, and that's the reinforcer because you're making the dog more likely to do that thing when you ask him again in the future. But then there's a moment where you're no longer providing reinforcement or the reward and you're also not asking the dog to do anything. And in that moment, the dog is on his own time. And so like if you say you're training with food, the dog sits, you click, you give him the food, he's eating it from his hand. Right now he can do anything he wants. Right? Like he can do anything. And our hope is that the dog starts like prompting you, "Hey, I'm like tell me to do something because I want to earn more of that food. Like I want more more reward." Tell me to do something, make it reinforcement for the thing that I did. I want to keep going. But also then I think, you know, and to speak back to that analogy, the computer, you know, it's RAM versus the long-term memory in that when the RAM gets full, I want the dog to disengage from me. And some people kind of get upset because, and certainly I have in the past where you say, Hey, the dog just checked out on you. It's like, well, he didn't really. Because I haven't asked him to do anything. He, I asked him to do stuff and we've done five or six reps of the same thing or, or whatever we're doing and I've paid him. And right now the payment finished. He's either got the ball in his mouth or he's eating the food or whatever. And I have not yet asked him to do anything. And if my dog turns around and goes and walks off and has a sit down in the shade at that point, I'm really happy for him to do that because that's that soak time. And what I do is I, I will watch him closely and I will be sort of inviting him when you're ready to go again, come back. And some people, like I say, that that really can be a hard pill to swallow. It certainly was for me for a long time because I would say, no, nah, he just checked out on you. You've got to bring him back, right? You can't teach him to check out because he'll check out in the future. But he won't. Because I'm never going to say to my dog, "Hey, like at no point in a trial or when I need him to work, am I going to say like, here's your reinforcer. Now I don't need anything from you and just go do whatever you want. Because, well, I need him to work. I'm telling him to work. I'm telling him to do stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And I never at any point on the trial field or in real life with my dog when it's not appropriate, say to him, just go do whatever you want. That's never going to happen. So it's okay to do that in training because now my dog is learning. Like I can go and I can let that soak and I can let that information you know, settle. And then when I'm ready, he's ready to take me back. And he goes and he sits down for 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, whatever. And I'm always looking at him and what ends up happening with like my own dog, but most dogs end up the same is they look back at you. They kind of make eye contact and, and then I invite them in. That's when I clap. I'm like, Hey, come back. Right. Like, let's go again. I'm ready to go again. We can continue working. And I, what I notice, the more I do that, I kind of relate it to when I'm explaining to people, I kind of relate it to you know, I've been at this desk. We've been at it for a couple of hours. I've been at this desk since probably seven o'clock, right? Mm. I've been sitting here for four hours working and now talking to you. And it's been four hours. I've, I haven't needed to take a leak, right? But I know that I could at any minute. So it's kind of like I will when I really need to, right? Like if I need to go to the toilet, I just will when I really need to. But you know, when you go into the movies and you're like, oh, I can't miss any of this movie, right? Like, so I need to go to the toilet beforehand. I need to go to, I need to go take a piss before I see this movie. And then 20 minutes into it, you're like, oh, I'm busting. And you know, and all you're thinking about is like, I can't miss any part of this movie, but now I, I want to, but I've got this pressure of not being able to leave right now. I've got this conflict. What I want from my dog is to think if I get tired, I can take a break. I abs- I can just take a break. And I don't want him thinking if I get tired and I take a break, this motherfucker ends a session on me and I miss out on anything in the future. So then there's the stress of that. And what I have found when I did that in the past was that the dog starts not taking breaks when he needs them, starts, continues to re-engage. That ram gets full and he's not really learning much. And that's when you also dip into that no more, one more time, because the dog is pushing you for more, not because he wants to do more, but because he thinks that if he stops doing and stops engaging with you, then you will end the session. And that will be, that's his only opportunity to work for the day. Mm. So he keeps pushing for more, but what he's offering you is substandard. And then you're practicing substandard stuff. And especially if you're trying to teach a new behavior in that moment, he's not going to retain any of that. Like he may be able to do it and he may be able to continue to pursue reinforcement, but none of that's going to end up as long-term memory. And he's not going to, you know, your, your session while you might get a lot done, it's going to be tomorrow like he never did it. And there'd be lots of people that would you know say like, oh, I did this great session yesterday. It went for you know ages and ages. And then today the dog didn't do any of that shit. And I would argue that that's probably one of the reasons why is that, yeah, the dog was physically present, but it was just that he was going through the motions and he wasn't actually sort of taking in what was happening because he was thinking, shit, I need a break. But if I don't take it, if I, if I take a break, that'll end the session. I got to keep going. I got to like, you're essentially getting fake enthusiasm from the dog at that moment. But what I found is by letting the dog take a rest whenever I need to, he's less compelled, like it's less stressful in the back of his mind. Like when you're sitting there at the movies thinking, should I need to take a leak? But I can't, I don't encounter that. He knows if you need a break, man, you can take it. And so the lack of pressure in that means that he usually will go longer Mm. and he'll push right to the last minute. Like when he really needs a break before he'll go and take a break. And hopefully through, you know, careful management, I push his need to take a break beyond what I would ever reasonably ask for in real life so that he would never in, in a real life scenario, he would never hit that point of needing to take a break, but also it won't become an issue because I'm never going to give him the opportunity to, because he's going to be under command. He's going to be doing something specific rather than being told, just do whatever you want. Like I will do multiple times in a session.
1: Yeah, that's very well summarized. And I think that when you do build that positive incremental endurance, then you'll see the net benefits of it over a long period of time.
0: Totally. Yep.
1: Totally. That's a good place to leave it, I think. That was a very, very- I think you're right. There were some nicely laid out pearls of wisdom there.
0: (laughs) You know, we had a topic. We're going to talk about suppression because world-famous- And renowned dog trainer, Liam Webb suggested that we talk about it. And I I like to keep Liam as happy as possible because of how influential he is on the show, but we didn't get to the topic. So another time, sir, Liam, we'll get to it. I promise. Uh, Are you talking
1: about Liam,
0: little bitch, Webb?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. He's a good guy, isn't he? He's got a a great sense of humor. He's a great guy. Yeah. Yeah, I like him. Yeah, me too. Uh,
0: That's it for another episode of Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe. Do all that through the subscription service you download us from. Truly, the best way that you can help grow the show is to tell a friend in real life, right? Like tell the people you train with, encourage them to have a listen. Our goal is to, you know, provide as much value to the industry as we possibly can. And the best way to do that is through referrals. Word of mouth referrals are the way to go if you can. But share it to your story. Do all that kind of stuff if you can. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. We're having strategy meetings and stuff about Patreon. I can't even begin to describe to you guys how stressful I find this whole Patreon experience in making sure that everybody is getting value for their money there. But please, If you like the show, if you want us to keep going and if you want us to keep producing content, whether that content ends up behind a paywall in the future, like certainly many of it will because we want to give direct reinforcement to the people who give to us in Patreon, as well as if you want the ability to produce more content for a greater audience, please, the way to do that is to contribute in Patreon. For everybody that does contribute, you cannot even understand how much we appreciate you and how much it means to us.
1: What I've got to add to that as well is that uh, so much of the information that we talk about and the experiences that we share, the physical manifestation of that is in Patreon. Like there's so much information in there now. Trust me. I mean, you're not losing by joining up on Patreon and surfing through a bunch of the material. Like, every NDTF group that I've got, like I always say to them, if you're looking to expand your knowledge, like some of the content that you've done recently has just been mind boggling stuff. Like there is so much there, so much value. And I'm not saying that just to attract you into signing up to Patreon, but I'm saying to people, like if you're a new trainer or you know a bunch of new trainers, there is so much learning content and so much value in Patreon. There is nothing that you are not going to find beneficial in there. There's something for everybody at all levels of their dog training experience and also, as Pat has expressed many times before and we both have, is that it keeps our show going. We both know that there's people who are on Patreon who have never watched any of the content. That concerns us because we kind of think we feel like we're doing this to give back to you. I understand that there are people who go, well, fuck it. I don't care. I just want to support these guys. I There are so many people, so many, you know, so many amazing people who, and there are so many amazing people regardless, you know, but there are a lot of incredibly generous people who write to us and say, you know, we just love you guys. And we feel that you give so much to the industry that we just want to support you. And that validating our efforts and the podcast itself and that expression of gratitude from you is so heartfelt, like it really is. I don't want to sound contrived when we try and express this to you at the end of these shows, because I don't want people to think, oh, yeah, you're yeah, just saying that to try and get us in Patreon to spend money. I'm not. Patreon is a service. It helps us, but it also helps anybody who's in the industry who wants to add value to their their knowledge banks. So if you are a contributor to Patreon and you haven't gone through a bit of a surf through there, do yourself a favor and have a look at it, especially the IGP video that Pat did For anybody who's curious about sports, and I love that saying that you said last time in the episode is – Bite Sports Curious. I think we should get probably get a t-shirt put up about that one. I think that's a, <laughs> that's a great saying. So for anybody who is Bite Sports Curious, he really went to an extensive amount of effort and research to put that video together, like a lot of travel, a lot of his own personal time. And it's not a guilt thing. I'm not trying to guilt anyone into this. I'm just saying that, you know, like if you haven't experienced that video, it's some of Pat Stewart production's finest quality. So- have a look at it, see what you think. And we'd love some feedback on it. So
0: it's there for you. Yeah. I think that's what I want to say on Patreon is that like feedback is always absolutely welcome about the type of content, whether it should, whether the stuff that I'm making should be in the Patreon or whether the people who contribute to the Patreon like me making content that they can then share with their clients. So it's not behind a paywall, but it's content that they can then share publicly. Whatever you guys... Uh, just feedback. Just let me know. Let me know because I'm shooting in the dark out here. Just give me some goddamn
1: feedback. Get your clients into our Patreon. Support <laughs> the Nine Paradigm. Support the show that supports you. That's
0: right. Anyway, that's enough of that. Buy our T-shirts, though. <laughs> get into Teespring. Get into Teespring and buy a White Sports Curious T-shirt. We obviously need to get that in there. Or a Wall Tapestry Zoe, if you're listening, I can think of some pictures to go along with the Bite Sports Curious slogan. Or Avery. Uh, I'm sure you or can Avery too.
1: Yeah. It supports the wonderful artists as well that are in our industry. People like Zoe Needy and Avery Keller who donated to us, they are amazing people, very generous. James also contributed to our logo. You know, there are a lot of people when we've had competitions in the past who have, you know, their friends, colleagues, and everything have all thrown effort into it. Speaking of, I've still got to get that T-shirt that Katrina did that people went mad for of her yeah, cool yeah, story, yeah, bro. Show, show me dog, dog yeah. Line, yeah. So I've got to, I've got to actually get yeah. that as a white diagram with a black shirt. So that, that's coming soon as well. Yeah. And the headbands.
0: Did you notice my haircut now that barbers are open? Now that you've mentioned it, yes. (laughs) All right. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the Facebook group. It's the Canine Paradigm discussion group. There's lots of cool discussions going in there, as well as if you want to get in contact with me and Glenn individually, shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Before we finish, I promise I'm going to, we have like over 500 unread emails and I promise I'm going to try and be better at getting back to that kind of stuff. It's just that we have a lot going on. Anyway, that's it. Goodbye. (laughs)